Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I don't know if you remember because it's been so long ago, but in March 2020, we gathered in your kitchen, also known as our previous Have You Heard podcast recording studio, and we did what would turn out to be our last in-person recording session. Yeah, I I mean, possibly last in-person recording session ever since we now have many WePod studios as a part of our empire. Uh, But yeah, I remember it well. We invited Nate Jones to come and talk with us about special education. The pandemic was just starting. I don't know that any of us really understood yet that it was a pandemic. It was still a novel flu. And we were just really interested in talking about special education, which we so rarely have talked about on this show, and which is such a massive part of American public education as well as private education, constitutes such a large national investment, at least relative to our spending on public education in general. Um, And we wanted to talk with him about that as well as specifically about special education teachers, uh, since special educators are one of these target groups that we are trying desperately to get more of in American classrooms uh, and among whom there are very high attrition rates. And it seemed to me at least that talking about special educators uh, would give us a way of talking about some of the challenges in the teaching profession broadly by looking at this sort of heightened set of conditions that we see among this subgroup of teachers. So we had this great session sitting around your kitchen table and then two weeks later, virtually, you know, the whole world just shut down. And so I think we felt like, well, you know, it's, you know, things are so crazy and chaotic. This isn't really relevant anymore. And so it lived for 18 months in a folder in my Dropbox And then we decided, you know what, like the special ed issue has reasserted itself with new urgency in and through the pandemic. And it turned out that some of the things that Nate was already worried about are now especially urgent in the wake of the pandemic. Yeah, there's been so much conversation, uh, less now actually than about six months ago, but about quote unquote learning loss and the national conversation about the impact on young people of the pandemic, you know, specifically with regard to their educational outcomes, was really focused on students in the general education classroom. And for those who were involved in special education, uh, that seemed like an almost trivial set of concerns compared with their concerns about students in the special education classroom for whom the pandemic has been orders of magnitude Uh, more challenging. And those are students who we know need more support, are legally entitled to more support. And in most cases, they really weren't able to get what they are entitled to, uh, what they require for their educational development. It is a real crisis right now. And the pandemic, of course, has created numerous challenges for educators and had a serious impact on the profession and you know, the attractiveness of the profession. And again, that has been 
just exacerbated with regard to the challenges faced by special educators and the challenge of retaining them in the classroom. Well, Jack, I do have to say that going back and listening to our original conversation with Nate did make me sort of miss the days when I was able to experience your unique personality in person. Well, Jennifer, when we record remotely, I'll tell you, I still make a little coffee and I put it in your place where you used to take it, and I put out the cream and the sugar for you, just as you used to always insist on. Uh, so the door is, well, it's, it's locked right now, and will remain locked, just in case you decide to swing by. But as soon as we're out of the pandemic, the door is open, your coffee is there, your microphone is warm. Our guest today is Nathan Jones. He's an associate professor of special education at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. And the focus of his research is the special education workforce. When we had the pleasure of sitting down in person with Nate back in March of 2020, he was already concerned about a looming teacher shortage in special education. And when we caught up with him again, this time virtually, Nate told us that after the pandemic, he has officially moved beyond concern. I'm not sure if we're at the brink of a disaster, but what I do know is is pre-pandemic, the, the special ed teacher shortage was widespread and longstanding, right? We've had longstanding shortages among the special ed teaching workforce in, in all 49, not all 49 states, that's not the right way to say things. We've had longstanding teacher shortages across most all states in this country um, in special education. And my concern was that pre-pandemic, because of the fact that we had created a position for special educators, the, the job of a special educator was one that had some inherent problems in how it gets enacted in schools and how schools use special educators. And that shows up in these shortages. When you take that and then you add to that the last 18, 20 months, which we know across the entire teaching workforce has taken a toll on the mental health and well-being of teachers, I cannot foresee a situation where we sustain the the level of shortages that were there pre-pandemic, and I can very easily foresee a situation in which it gets worse. One of the things that interests me in thinking about teachers and the teaching profession in the context of not only the pandemic and the post-pandemic, which we're all looking forward to, but also these increasing attacks on public education, all of which are coming on top of two decades of an attack on teachers and particularly on their unions. And in thinking about teachers in the teaching profession, one of the things that I keep coming back to is that teachers are compensated for their labor, not just with money, but also with what Dan Lordy called psychic rewards, right? That there are these intangible benefits to the profession. And one of the big ones is the psychic reward of feeling like you're doing something socially valuable and that makes a difference. I'm wondering, with specific regard to special educators, what your thoughts are about what is essentially declining pay for teachers as these 
non-pecuniary benefits are eroded, right? As the psychic benefits of the work are eroded. Do you see that being the same for special educators as for classroom teachers in the mainstream classroom? Do you see it being more severe for them? The way I think about this is that if we if we consider the psychic rewards of teaching largely being associated with what teachers derive from their interactions with students, right? The the rewards of teaching involve feeling successful with students. Then it bears on school organizations to establish working conditions and working environments that promote teachers' ability to foster those connections. And when we look at the literature on special ed teacher attrition, for example, the prominent factor driving attrition is working conditions. We are setting up job expectations where special educators often feel overworked, they feel stressed, they feel professionally isolated. There are very few of them in schools that do what they do, so that so having natural peers is is challenging. We set up schools to divide between special ed and general ed. We introduce all sorts of role ambiguities. And one of the protective factors that we see again and again for special educators is positive work relationships with their peers, with their colleagues, but also with their administrators. Administrators make a huge difference for whether or not special educators decide to stay in the profession. It seems like every day there's another story about the toll that the pandemic and its aftermath is taking on teachers. Well, Nate says that while things are tough across the profession, special education teachers are confronting a uniquely challenging set of circumstances. I see a couple signs that we are making those working conditions worse. One is that clearly many individuals with disabilities are coming into schools this fall and this school year having not had the same kinds of opportunities they've had previously in terms of the mandated services laid out in their individualized education programs. Schools have been scrambling to put those things back in place. And so special educators, I think, are feeling the pressure to do right by what is legally mandated of them. That is introducing a pressure into existing working conditions. I think the other thing that I'm worried about is we've also seen a couple of signs that some of the supports that are in place for special educators are at risk of either disappearing or worsening underneath them. So the specific one I'm thinking about is the support of paraprofessionals. In a recent survey by Edweek, one of the things that school administrators said was a great staffing concern for them was finding enough paraprofessionals. I don't know if we have a paraprofessional shortage yet, but we could be on the brink of one. And that actually dovetails with some recent data from the state of Washington as well, looking at job postings. Paraprofessional job postings are among the various school professionals of one of the greater areas where schools are actively looking for people. And so the reason that becomes really critical for the work of special educators is if we take what is already a stressful job, already where we are putting things on the backs of special educators, if we are robbing them of personnel who are in their classrooms supporting them, it just makes their work even more difficult. Then, of course, there are the tremendous needs that special education students are bringing back to school with them. Special education is specialized instruction that is tailored to the individual needs of a student. That is a a legal requirement for how we approach the work of special education. And 
If our starting point is that for well over a year, students had reduced learning opportunities and reduced time directly engaged in instruction, that time is like the most critical thing for individuals with disabilities, right? We know that special education often means intensified instruction. It is taking the core instruction students receive in a general education class oftentimes and then building additional supports on top. It has been really hard to ensure that that suite of services has been supplied to students over the last 18, 20 months, right? And because of that, Students with disabilities are entering schools this year needing the development of foundational skills in reading and math and in other subjects as well. But that is like that is the core area where much of special ed services are focused. Okay, so by now you have a good sense of why Nate is so concerned about looming special education teaching shortages. But while the challenges facing special ed right now may be intense, they're not new. Nate says that in many ways, they've been with us since the very beginning. That's right. In addition to doing us the honor of two interviews on the same topic, Nate also agreed to climb into the time machine. So the recent history of special education, I mean, I I guess I'll go back to 1975, which seems recent-ish, which was the first federal legislation governing the education of students with disabilities in this country, PL 94-142, which laid out some basic tenets that still very much guide special education practice in this country today. I think the field has made some tremendous strides, but in many ways, Special education is grappling with many of the issues that were laid out in 1975 when that law was first passed. I mean, I will say this as somebody that spends a good deal of my professional life looking at shortages. So the field of special education is one that has been marked by persistent shortages that we have not ever really been able to adequately address. Those tend to be shortages that begin at point of entry in terms of not having an adequate number of recruits into the profession, and those carry all the way through the teacher pipeline to the point of attrition. We have heightened rates of attrition in special education that outpace pretty much any other field that are out there. And staffing challenges are not the only through line. Nate says that from the time that first law was enacted, schools have struggled to figure out how best to support students with special needs. I think there are persistent questions around how special education should be organized in schools. When the legislation was first put into place, I think that special ed felt a bit like an add-on. It was something that was being imposed onto schools. And in many ways, it still functions that way. So it is not uncommon for special educators and general educators to continue working not closely with one another. And now there's certainly exceptions to that. But when we look at the reasons that special educators leave, often it is opinions related to feeling professionally isolated, receiving role ambiguity that comes down from the top. So there have been a a couple of of recent large-scale surveys, nationally representative surveys of school leaders, and I think many principals report not knowing how to best support students with disabilities. And that is, again, something that harkens back to 1975. The fact that special education is treated as separate, even as the number of kids requiring special ed services has grown, is at the root of the problem. Nate says that if it were up to him, he'd break down those barriers so that all teachers are equipped to deal with kids with special needs. 
in my heart of hearts, if if I was responsible for licensure in in this country, if we had a licensure czar, I think I would push for a more aggressive version of licensure in which all teachers were equipped to work with all kids. I say that both because of the shortage issue, but also because the vast majority of students with disabilities spend the majority of their time in the general education classroom. So if we think about things that have changed since 1975, one of the big ones is that kids are spending more of their day each day in general education. But the fact of the matter is that many of these kids are spending most of their time working with general educators. And general educators, I would say, are often not quite equipped to work with those students. And, and, I, and I would support that with a few things. So the first is that in most state certification systems, general educators are often not required to take more than a single course on working with kids with disabilities. Very few, I think two states require clinical placements for pre-service teachers working with kids with disabilities. So our gen ed teachers are not being prepared to work with these students. And most every general education teacher is going to be assigned to kids with disabilities. And that presents, even if we, whatever ends up happening with the shortage issue, we still have this persistent issue that 15, roughly, percent of kids in this country have diagnosed disabilities, and many of those kids are working with gen ed teachers. Which brings us to one of the ironies of our present moment. For all of its vulnerabilities, special education in its ideal is actually uniquely equipped to support kids in our pandemic age. That's because it's organized around the needs of individual kids, a principle that could potentially improve and even democratize education for all kids. I mean, one of the hallmarks of special education is that the unit of, of schooling is the child, right? It is, at the end of the day, it is or instruction is meant to be organized around the needs of an individual child. And I think that is one of the, the true legacies of, of special education in this country, and it's one that we should fight to preserve. Now, that does not necessarily mean, though, that there aren't things we can be doing from special education to kind of take those lessons and apply them on a large scale. So I think one of the more promising versions of of this that I've seen is in, in what many schools are employing, these, these multi-tiered systems of support. So we've seen this both with academics and with behavior. One of the benefits of a, these kinds of school-wide systems is that they do not simply become something available to students with disabilities. The idea is that we have these school-wide support services for kids. And as we identify students that have more intensive needs, whether it's behavioral or act academic, we unlock these additional sets of interventions that become more inter uh, intensive. And that kind of system is both more proactive, but it also gets to this point that you were raising, right? It becomes more, for one, it, it decreases the, the social distinction between special ed and general ed, which I think is critical. And it also makes this idea of individualized services available to everybody, this, that idea of democratizing the, the, the spirit of special education and where its foundations, um, those kinds of systems bring that to life. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to work at what we refer to as a special education collaborative here in Massachusetts. These are regional schools for kids who have needs that their local school districts can't meet. I got to see exactly what Nate is describing in action. Every student had a team of adults entirely focused on them, and the level of support intensified or decreased depending on what else was going on. I came away feeling deeply inspired, but also, frankly, 
a bit downhearted. An approach like this is incredibly resource-intensive. Would it even be possible at, say, the school district level? I put that question to Nate. I think it would be difficult to scale in the context of a large school district or school system, but I also don't know how necessary it would be. I I, I think I would make the case that if we were to better support general educators to work with students with disabilities, and we made that a priority at the state and national level, a strategy like that would allow us to make great headway and in meeting many students' needs, right? So that for the students that have more severe needs or who would benefit from more of that customized one-on-one individual care, the resources get freed up to do that. There was a lot of conversation prior to last summer when I think a lot of policy elites believed that we had moved through the most difficult part of the pandemic and perhaps even that it was over. Conversations about learning loss, conversations about summer programming, conversations about catching students up so that everybody would be ready this fall. We know, of course, that the pandemic is not over. We know that the burdens on teachers, on students, on families continue. But as we look forward, I'm wondering, how should we be thinking about supporting students with disabilities such that we do right by them in order to give them what they didn't get during the pandemic, right? So I'm not narrowly focused on learning loss per se, whatever that means, but I am thinking about all of the things that schools can do for young people and how many of those things were not done for a long time because of the pandemic or were done in ways that don't match what would have been done in ordinary times. And so I would love to know how you're thinking about recovery, essentially, about restoring for these young people what they didn't get and that they deserve. I think we cannot get away from the fact that our students with disabilities need dedicated time around building these foundational skills in the core content areas, but that is not precluding additional support in social and emotional development and behavioral development. But my gosh, what we know is that for students who do not have those skills, the gaps between them and their peers get worse over time. As the academic content of classes intensifies, the the consequences of not having those foundational skills just get worse and worse. I think it is incumbent on schools at this point in time to really stop and take that issue seriously. And, and I think it's a really tricky balance. We know that these students need more time engaged in academic content, but they need that time in the face of what clearly is an amazingly challenging time for these students. We, we've kind of seen these stories of what teachers and students are experiencing in school this year. And so if we were to just full steam ahead, just focus on academic stuff, like clearly that is not in the best interest of students. So I think trying to find that balance, right, to make sure students have time engaged in instruction, but they're also okay, that's really hard. 
We've spent the bulk of this episode talking about the various challenges confronting special education right now, and frankly, they do seem a little overwhelming. If you're thinking to yourself, but what are we supposed to do? Know that you are not alone. Fortunately, Nate did have some solutions at the ready. He says that the first thing schools need to do is make sure that they're identifying who needs additional supports. One example of of something that schools could absolutely do to support students with disabilities at this moment. I really would encourage schools to ensure that there are systems in place that are recommended already as ways to support individuals with disabilities, right? And one of the key things is the presence of universal screening. This is something that is recommended for all students, that schools, especially at the elementary school level, are routinely checking where their students are at, on kind of foundational skills in reading and math, and then putting in place validated systems of progress monitoring. They exist, they are well-endorsed in the special education literature. Having those tools in place gives educators the information they need to say, who are the students that would benefit from additional support? And do we have systems in place, interventions in place, to provide the students with the additional support that they need? Now that is, again, that's a pre-pandemic recommendation, but it's one that becomes more important, I would think, now, given the variety of needs that students are facing. But it's probably one that's going to be more generally important at this time, not just for kids with disabilities, but for the broader population of kids who are struggling. And because time is of the essence right now, as in students need more of it and teachers don't have enough of it, Nate thinks that it's more important than ever to look at how teachers' time is being used, even if it means challenging some widely used practices. If you take the position that time is of the essence and that special educators' impact on students is going to be limited somewhat on a day-to-day basis based on the amount of time available— then you really need to make sure that special educators' time is being used in a way that makes sense. I have some questions around some of the basic practices we use in special education, whether or not they are benefiting kids. So one of the things that I've talked about was co-teaching. So co-teaching is a practice that is endorsed widely, yet we actually have really little empirical evidence that co-teaching benefits kids. But does taking a special educator and putting them in a general ed teacher's classroom, does that increase the likelihood that kids are getting access to specialized instruction? We don't really know. So I say that because if schools are relying on the presence of a special ed teacher in a gen ed teacher's class as the way they're going to support students with disabilities during this time, it's going to be woefully insufficient, from my perspective, to meet the need of the moment. Which brings us to one last potential remedy to stem the exodus of special education teachers, cold, hard cash. Nate says that extra money flowing into schools thanks to the Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Fund, or ESSER, is a game changer as far as what schools can try to do to attract and hold on to special ed teachers. The question is, will it make a difference? There is this recognition that the special ed teacher shortage is a problem and likely one that's going to intensify because of the pandemic. And as a result, we've seen 
very, I would say, aggressive approaches financially to try to to stem the tide, right? And and so Detroit being one example where it's fifteen thousand dollar bonuses to keep special educators in the classroom. Hawaii being another one that is offering $10,000, and they're not the only one. And so there is this recognition, there's a faith that if you give money to folks and incentivize the profession of special ed by making it more attractive financially, that maybe that is going to address some of these shortage issues. I think it remains to be seen. I think it's an interesting thought experiment. I'm guessing that you all have thoughts on whether or not it's going to be successful. If we know that the challenge of special education is the working conditions that we put in place, you could give people all the money in the world, but if you don't change those core working conditions, are we really fixing the problem? I am excited and interested to try to study and look at the impacts of these policy changes, but am I optimistic that they are going to stem the tide? I am probably not. Of course, if you are a regular listener to this program, then you are all too aware that when it comes to the questions that preoccupy us, there are no easy answers. Nate says that confronting the shortage of special education teachers will take more than bonuses. We have to fix the structural problem that's at the heart of how we think about special education. It is hard for me to envision a world where we are suddenly inundated with a surplus of special educators. We can do everything in our power to increase the pipeline unless we deal with the realities of how special education is structured in schools and how professionals are oriented in their work around special education in schools, I think the questions of attrition are going to continue to dog us. I think the question of how we can improve the working conditions of schools for special educators is really parallel to the the question of how we can improve the functioning of schools for kids with disabilities. For the kids that have disabilities and the adults that work with them, we still tend to structure schools in ways that don't foster inclusion. While progress has been made, I I do think it continues to be the case in, in many places that the education of kids with disabilities continues to be seen as the work of special educators. And unless we address that issue, that that core underlying issue, I have a hard time seeing these shortage issues work work themselves out. A big thank you to our special guest, Nate Jones, for his expertise on such an important topic and for joining us not just once, but twice. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss what is probably pretty obvious to everybody by now. Things are bad, bad, bad out there. But before we move on to more bad news, just a reminder that we love hearing from you. If you have an idea for an episode or think you'd make a great guest, stop by our new website, haveyouheardpodcast.com and drop us a line. So Jack, do you know what day today happens to be? It's Veterans Day. I know that. That is correct. Anything else? (laughs) I know it's not your birthday. That's all. It is not. (laughs) That's, That's all I know. Today happens to be the one-year anniversary of the publication of our book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. Happy birthday, book. Oh, (laughs) that's sweet. Little baby book. (laughs) And and how she's grown up in that year. Uh, Wow, totally. Yeah, lots of admirers 
And then a couple people who, as she has gotten older, just have learned that they do not get along at all. So thinking back, you know, first to the 18 months ago when we last had our an in-person recording session with Nate. And then, you know, like our our book at that point, it, you know, it hadn't come out. We were we we were on the cusp of the pandemic, but I don't think we had any idea sort of how prescient we would end up being. That and that if anything, our warnings about just how precarious the state of public education was have turned out to be not nearly dire enough. Yeah, I was really shocked by that because, of course, as we were writing the introduction and conclusion to the book, right, we had written everything else and then we just needed to frame it for people. Uh, it was already uh, clear that we were in a pandemic and that that was going to have an impact on schools. What I think that we didn't really see fully was how the pandemic would create conditions for extreme forms of politics. We knew that the pandemic was going to create opportunities for right-wing policy leaders to drive forward some of their pet projects. I don't think we fully appreciated the ways in which that and something that you know wasn't on our radar at all, and that would be that sort of third racial reawakening that happened uh, over the summer, that summer. I don't think we were fully able to see the way in which conditions would be created conducive to what you, Jennifer, have called the grievance industrial complex. Um, that that is not something anybody saw coming and it really just um, turns up the temperature here a lot. Well, Jack, I think you have done something just great there. You've actually come up with an idea for what we should discuss in the weeds. I think people are so hungry to understand how things have gotten so bad so fast. And so they're going to need our help to come up with what I think of as a kind of unified field theory. <laughs> That's right. Uh, ever the scientist. Uh, well, before you make your pitch for the paywall, I'll just remind listeners that there are lots of ways to support the show. Uh, give us a rating if you haven't done so already. That helps people find us. Make sure that you are a subscriber so that the latest episode automatically downloads wherever you're listening to it. Uh, we love when you share the show, and one way that you can bring us into that conversation so that we see you doing it is by tagging the show's Twitter handle. That's at Have You Heard Pod. As we were just discussing, we've got a book out. There's an audio book version of it if you don't like to read. If you're a, a, a what kind of learner would it be? An audible learner? And anyway, an ear learner. Uh, and, um, and I think that's it. I think that's my spiel. And for everybody else, if you do want to climb over the paywall and join us in our special area that we call In the Weeds and hear our theory of why things are just bad, 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 all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and you'll see a list of the various extras you can get just by throwing a couple of dollars our way each month. We do a custom reading list for each episode. And if you subscribe at the $10 a month rate, you get a signed copy of our one-year-old book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. Auditory learner, I think, is what it's called. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>